0: Let me transition. Let's, let's uh, go to uh, Zephaniah, the book of Zephaniah. You can, if you have a copy of scripture, you can, you can turn there uh, with me, and let me pray for us as we jump in. Let me pray for us. Father, we praise you because you are a good God who is creating a people for yourself, for your glory, and for our joy. So would you now, as we look to your word, would you form that in us? Would you form us into the kind of people, into the kind of people collectively and individually who are shaped by the priorities of your word, who are shaped by the principles of your gospel That says uh, that, that is um, devoted to, uh, above all else, devoted to uh, your character and, and, and your justice? Would you form that in us as a people and as individuals now? We, we ask this because we believe in the power of the Holy Spirit to accompany your word, the proclamation and the reading of your word, to, to affect that change in us. So would you do that in us now uh, during this time, during this morning? We pray this in Christ's name. Amen. All right, we are in the the second week of a four-week series in the book of Zephaniah. The book of Zephaniah is as uh, a tiny little uh, three-chapter minor prophet, about two-thirds of the way through your Scripture. It's an obscure, random, small book of the Bible, and we're but but we're gonna as we're uh, jumping into it, as we're studying it together. We are we are discerning uh, things that are we are discovering things that are far from obscure, far from random, far from small and insignificant. We are discer- discovering big important truths about God and of his gospel and in particular we are we we we're, we're said we're looking at uh, our committed king what we see in the book of Zephaniah is the commitment the covenant commitment and faithfulness of our of our God and of our of our king last week uh, uh, we we saw that God is so radically committed to his people that he will restore a relationship with himself even if it means painfully removing our confidence in lesser things. That's how committed God is to his people. He will go to whatever lengths it takes to, to, even if it means painfully removing our confidence in lesser things to restore a relationship uh, with himself, all right we said that Zephaniah takes place, Zephaniah is preaching and he 's prophesying at the end of, at the end of the, the, the story of, of, of scripture uh, specifically today we 're going to be looking at uh, chapter two that 's what we saw in chapter one today we 're looking at chapter mostly chapter two and the beginning of chapter three. Uh, uh, and uh, Zephaniah comes at the end of the story of of Scripture, so uh, thousands of years after God made his initial promises to Abraham, and then to Moses, and then to David, and after thousands and thousands of years of God being faithful and committed to his people, his people have repaid him with unfaithfulness and relentless rebellion, uh, surprising, shocking adultery and idolatry over and over again, and now Zephaniah is coming at the very end of that story, uh, during the reign of King Josiah, and he sees just in the in the very near, near future, he sees this cataclysmic event—the destruction of Jerusalem by Babylon, by the invading uh, Babylonian Empire. He sees that's coming. It's right on the horizon. It's right on the forefront of his mind. And he's saying, and he's trying to prevent this, and he's trying to explain. But at the, at, at, but even more so, he's trying to answer the question that's behind all of his words, which is, is how committed is God to His people? How committed is God to his people? Or is this the end? Will sin and all of its damaging effects have the final word? And what we see is in the book of of Zephaniah is that even in spite of of God's people's utter unfaithfulness, God is radically and relentlessly committed to his people, even if it means causing suffering and pain. And so uh, last week, uh, we we saw one aspect. Today's theme as we look at God's commitment to his people is this. God is so radically committed, our king is so radically committed to us, to his people, that he will defeat our most oppressive enemies wherever they may lie. God is so radically committed to you, to us as his people, that he will defeat our most oppressive enemies wherever they may lie. All right. In, uh, in September of 1838, an African-American slave escaped from his master's plantation in Maryland. He snuck onto a train, headed north to Baltimore, and then he snuck on another train through, through Delaware uh, and made it to Philadelphia, and then finally from Philadelphia he snuck on another train and made it to New York City. And upon arriving in New York City, this escaped slave, a guy named Frederick Douglass, who you may have heard of in in your high school uh, history class, he began in New York City, he began what would become a 25-year commitment and pursuit to fighting for the freedom of his fellow black Americans and to ending the oppressive regime of slavery. So he toured the country in the in the couple decades prior to the Civil War. He toured the country giving speeches. He formed political coalitions. He raised money. He won the ear of Abraham Lincoln. And then, even after the Emancipation Proclamation was finalized in 1865, even after that, Frederick Douglass devoted the final 30 years of his life. Uh, all the way up until his death in 1865, to pursuing, even after freedom was technically granted, to pursuing equal rights and privileges for African-Americans, to the same same rights and privileges for African-Americans as their white counterparts. This was a man who was devoted, who had devoted every single ounce of his free life to the cause of ending oppression and bringing freedom to others. And Frederick Douglass and and those who were with him, he knew that if their life if there if there was ever going to be justice for African Americans, then this kind of relentless commitment would be required from the entire nation of people. So listen to what his friend, William Lloyd Garrison, who was one of his first friends after becoming a, a free person uh, or escaping from, from slavery. This is one of the first friends that he made who's also an abolitionist. He wrote this in the preface to, um, to Fre- Frederick Douglass's autobiography. This is what he wrote and he's addressing all of us. He says this. He says, Reader, are you with the man-stealers in sympathy and purpose or on the side of their downtrodden victims. If with the former, then you are the foe of God and man. If with the latter, what are you prepared to do and dare in their behalf? Be faithful, be vigilant, be untiring in your efforts to break every yoke and let the oppressed go free come what may, cost what it may, inscribe on the banner which you unfurl to the breeze as your religious and political motto no compromise with slavery, no union with slaveholders. That was 1845. That was 20 years before the the end of the Civil War. So this, from Frederick Douglass and from others with him, this was a radical commitment to the end of oppression. And as we go through Zephaniah, and we study the kinds of things that God is committed to for his people, without a doubt, one of the chief one of his chief obsessions in the Bible is to end oppression and to bring about justice in the world that he had created. And so, like Douglas, Frederick Douglass, who who devoted nearly 60 years to the cause of freedom and equality, God is devoted over the long haul, tirelessly, through whatever means necessary to end oppression and, uh, and defeat his people's enemies wherever they may lie. Now, there's gonna be, as, we, as we go through Zephaniah chapter 2 and the beginning of Zephaniah 3, there's going to be two points that I want to see about God's commitment to ending oppression. There's two points that I want us to wrestle with and then we're going to try to apply that, take that home uh, in, our, in our final point. Okay? So that's that's how we're gonna do. So first first thing, first uh, the first point that we see that we're gonna see is that God is committed to creating a world for His people where they will no longer be oppressed by outside enemies. God is committed to creating a world for His people where they will no longer be oppressed by outside uh, by outside enemies. So. Zephaniah opened his book in chapter 1 by exclusively speaking to his own nation, to the nation of Judah, that's, that's in the city of Jerusalem. And, but now, in chapter 2, he, he, he's going to point the camera outward, he's going to do a 7th century B.C. version of a panoramic photo, okay? He's going to take us a tour, and he takes 11 verses, the rest of chapter 2, most of chapter 2, to give us a tour of the surrounding nations and describe the judgment that is coming to them. So, and he starts with, he starts with the, the the Philistines. Okay, that's where he starts in chapter two, verse four. If you have a copy of Scripture, uh, turn there with me. And he starts with the Philistines that are directly to the east of Judah. So he's in the map, the Judah is the, the, the lavender, and then uh, the Philistines are are the are the east are, are the red, and they're right up on the coast, the coast of the Mediterranean. And the Philistines are the ancient enemies of Israel ever since they entered the promised land. These are some of the, the of the people that God had told Joshua to drive out of the land thousands of years ago, or, or a thousand years ago, but they had failed to do so. And so for the past 800 years or so or more, the Philistines had been a perpetual... Thorn in the Israelites' side. They were there at times oppressors. They would they would raid and take Israelites uh, prisoner. They would they would uh, they would abuse the Israelites. They would harass the Israelites in all sorts of ways. And so, in verse seven of chapter two, look look with me. Verse seven, he says, God says that this is finally going to change. He, he spends four, five, and six talking about what's going to happen, and then he says, verse seven, he says, the coastland that is the Philistines, the Philistines on the coast, they will belong to the remnant of the house of Judah. They will find pasture. There, They will lie down in the evening among the houses of Ashkelon. That's, uh, that's one of the major uh, cities of, of the Philistines. For the Lord their God will return to them and restore their fortunes. What he's going to say is, finally, the, the, this uh, God is finally going to complete and finish the job that Joshua and the Israelites should have started, or that should have finished a long time ago, and their oppression will, the oppression from the Philistines will end. But then he moves from the west to the east, and he addresses two more uh, separate but but related tribes, the Moabites and the Ammonites. Okay, and just like the uh, just like the Philistines, these groups had been oppressive enemies of God's people for centuries. And here's how God addresses them, chapter two, verse eight of uh, your following along with me, chapter 2, verse 8 I have heard of the taunting of Moab and the insult of the Ammonites who have taunted my people and threatened their territory therefore as I live, this is the declaration of the Lord of armies, the God of Israel Moab will be like Sodom and the Ammonites like Gomorrah a place overgrown with weeds, a salt pit and a perpetual wasteland the remnant of my people will plunder them the remainder of my nation will dispossess them This is what they get for their pride because they have taunted and acted arrogantly against the people of the Lord of armies. What does God promise to do? One day, he promises to complete the conquest that Israel had failed to because of their compromises. He will finally and fully remove the enemies that have harassed and oppressed his people, and he's going to create... For them, a, a true and a perfect promised land, like these, the the land of the Ammonites, the Moabites, and the Philistines, those were all originally promised. That was originally promised to Israel. Uh, and so what he's, what he's just saying is, I'm going to be faithful to my covenant with Abraham thousands of years ago. I'm going to be finally be faithful and bring about what you failed to do because of your compromises. I'm going to bring that about. I'm going to create for you the promised land, the land flowing with milk and honey, the, the, the promised land f- f- filled with prosperity and peace and righteousness and justice. I'm going to create that land for you. Through through the through the the discipline and through the judgment of the of of the surrounding of these surrounding oppressors, God was going to c- complete His promises to the nation of Israel. So that's. That's the first two enemies. The enemies right to the east and west, and they have been the pesky smaller nations that have been biting at Israel's uh, ankles for for generations. But the, but then he he talks about two other uh, two other enemies uh, later in, in the second half of the chapter. First, he brings in Cush. Uh, we have to kind of zoom out here. So Cush. He talks about Cush. Cush is way in the south. It's kind of uh, Sudan, Ethiopia. It's the people that live south of of, of Egypt. Uh, um, and he, his words to them are very brief. He says, you Cushites will be slain by my sword. Okay, so he goes from east to west to south, and then he moves quickly up to the north to another major superpower. So Cush was a, was a, was a, was a, a big, big power of the day. The, the other three tribes are pretty small. And then this final one, Assyria in the north, is another big major superpower. Uh, and remember, Assyria—they're the ones that had invaded Israel a hundred years prior, or so, to, to Zephaniah's day. And he had Assyria had totally vanquished the northern tribes and nearly conquered Judah as well. They came right to the brink of capturing uh, Jerusalem. So Assyria is—is uh, uh, is, um, what uh, is Assyria was to Judah what like Russia is to Ukraine today. Okay, and this is what God says. He says uh, he will. uh, What verse is this in? I don't know. 13. He said, He will also stretch out his hand against the north and destroy Assyria. He will make Nineveh a... Nineveh is a capital of Assyria. He will make Nineveh a desolate ruin, dry as the desert. This is the jubilant city that lives in security, that says to herself, I exist and there is no one else. What a desolation she has become, a place for wild animals to lie down. Okay? So this is how God confidently and terrifyingly addresses the greatest superpowers of his day. You will be nothing. Okay, so what does this mean for us? What is God's commitment to creating a world for his people where they they will no longer be oppressed by outside enemies? What does that have to do with us? What does the destruction of ancient Assyria and Cush possibly have relevance for you and me today? God is just as committed to freeing his people from oppressive powers today as he was back then. As history unfolds, uh, all the promises that God makes to each of these nations, the Assyrians, the Cushites, the the Moabites, the Ammonites, the Philistines, all these promises, they each come true. Uh, They each experience uh, destruction to varying extents. But ultimately, God's political and military victories they are, they, what they're pointing us to is a greater victory, and this is something that we, we often miss in the, in the in our understanding of the gospel. And as we read the as we read uh, in throughout the, the Old Testament, uh, as, as we read throughout the Old Testament and the New Testament, we, we neglect this theme. So as much as the gospel is like our um, our, our, our version of the gospel is that if we accept Jesus into our, our heart and ask Him for forgiveness, He'll forgive us our sins and we get to go to heaven when we die. That's a, that's an essential part of the gospel. That we but it's not the only thing of the gospel. The gospel is also the story of how King Jesus defeats all the oppressive powers that wage war against his people. So look at how Paul, uh, this is how, uh, that's the Assyrian invasion, and then this is, so all, all the way around, 360 freedom. This is how Paul summarizes the gospel. This is a big view of the gospel that, that Paul has. This is In Colossians chapter 2, he says, He erased the certificate of death with its obligations that was against us and opposed to us and has taken it away by nailing it to, to the cross. He disarmed the rulers and authorities and disgraced them publicly. That's like war victory language there. He triumphed over them in Jesus, in Him. So here's the gospel according to the New Testament. That your sin, that death, that Satan and all the spiritual, supernatural, unseen powers of this world, all of them have been laid waste through the cross of Christ and his victorious resurrection. Our greatest enemy is not Assyria or Moab or China or ISIS. Our greatest enemies are the rulers and authorities who are opposed to us and who weaponize sin, who weaponize our temptation, who weaponize self-destruction, who weaponize unwarranted shame, who weaponize past abuse. These powers bend those things toward our demise in an oppressive, cruel ways. But Christ has triumphed over them publicly. And because of this great victory, there will be a day when our conquering king will usher in a new world for us, and for all of his people who are oppressed by sin, the devil and death itself, and that's why when we read the Old Testament, this is a thing. Like the Old Testament is jarring to us because there's violence, because there's destruction to these these Gentile nations. There's there's uh, even this morning we were reading in the reading plan, reading uh, Psalm fifty-eight. It says that God, uh, David's calling down judgment and all this wrath and curses on on, God, on on his enemies. Like what's with that? Why is that so jarring? It's because all of God's victory over his enemies in, in the in the Old Testament. One of the purposes for that for all of that description is to point us to, to Jesus' greater enemies over even greater, uh, greater victories over even greater enemies. Because now our, our, our battle is not against flesh and blood. But against uh, the principalities and powers of the earth. just that's what Christ and the gospel has defeated and accomplished for us. And he's and it's pointing us to a day when when the the promised land, the, the like Israel as it was supposed to be, will one day be an even greater new world. We will have the greatest, truest new Jerusalem and new promised land in the new heavens and the new earth. This is what what John says in, in Revelation twenty five. He says, "Then I heard a loud voice, or Revelation twenty one. He said." Um, he says, then I heard a loud voice from the throne. Look, God's dwelling is with humanity and he will, leave with, uh, he will live with them. They will be his peoples and God himself will be with them and will be their God. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes. Death will be no more. Our greatest enemy, grief, crying, and pain will be no more because the previous things have passed away. This whole earth has passed away. Nothing unclean. At the end of the chapter, this is what he says, nothing unclean will ever enter into it nor anyone who does what is detestable or false that is those uh, uh, that is oppressors but only those who, li- who only those written in the lamb's book of life all oppression of every form spiritual and physical political uh, all of all oppression shall cease and would god teach our hearts to long for this for this world okay so god is committed to creating a world for his people where they will no longer be oppressed by outside enemies. Secondly, though, God is committed to rooting out oppression from within his own people. God is committed to, to, uh, to defeating enemies without and within. So let's look to now, starting in chapter, chapter 3. God is, uh, so, so, uh, so Zephaniah takes us on a, like a little pan- panoramic tour of all the surrounding nations. Now he's pointing the the camera at the mirror. This is a 7th century B.C. version of a selfie, okay? But this one is not going to be so glamorous as as ours, okay? Uh, So, uh, um, turn to chapter 3, verses, uh, and we'll read the first five five verses of chapter 3. He says, Woe to that city that is rebellious and defiled, the oppressive city. He's talking about Jerusalem here. She has not obeyed. She has not accepted discipline. She has not trusted in the Lord. She has not drawn near to her God. The princes within her are roaring lions. Her judges are wolves of the night, which leave nothing for the morning. Her prophets are reckless, treacherous men. Her priests profane the sanctuary. They do violence to instruction. The righteous Lord is in her. He does no wrong. He applies His justice morning by morning. He does not fail at dawn. Yet the one who does wrong knows no shame. Okay, so here's an important, uh, important thing that we see all throughout the prophets and, and, and almost every single prophet. We see that uh, God's chosen people, the, the, the sin and the unfaithfulness, the idolatry of God's chosen people, has risen to the point where now God is treating and speaking to them as if they were just the same as their, as their pagan neighbors. And that's because they are guilty here of the exact same oppression that they were victims of. They actually find out that that, that's not the whole story. They're actually oppressors themselves. They're guilty of the same oppression themselves. And so he calls them out. And that's that's their title that he gives them, the oppressive city. And specifically, he calls out the leaders. Did you you notice that? The the princes, the prophets, the judges, the priests. That is, those who are in power are using their power to Corruptly, They're using it to take advantage of and to harm those who are vulnerable and who are unable to defend themselves. And this leads us to something that's really strikingly unique uh, and that our culture really, really needs. That's strikingly unique and powerfully unique to the biblical worldview. So for all of chapter 2... Zephaniah has been wagging his fingers at, at, the, at, the, at the neighbors all around. But here in chapter 3, that God reminds us of the, the proverb that you learned in first grade, that whenever you point your finger, you have three more pointing, pointing back. But for all our, our culture like, extols that proverb and hates hypocrisy, uh, this is a, a, an aspect of biblical prophecy and a worldview that's shaped by the gospel that we're desperately missing in our day. So it's what, it's what Christopher Watkins, who's a philosopher, he calls cultural self-critique. And that's what the Bible model, models for us. Cultural self-critique. Uh, we live in a, among a generation that is the master of suspicion. Like we're all suspicious, we're all good at criticizing, we're all just prone naturally. Our instinct is to criticize and complain. As a result of the the Enlightenment, as a result of the Scientific Revolution, as a result of uh, you know of the uh, of everything that went on in the middle of the twentieth century, we have been taught to question, to critique, to challenge, and to be suspicious of everything. We're, we we're taught to wag the finger. Uh, we critique it all. Religion. Institutions, uh, those in power, the, even history itself—the narrative that we construct for ourselves—we critique it all. And this criticism, this critique, and suspicion—it's actually contributed to a lot of amazing things, a lot of prosperity and growth in our society. That that same criticism and critique, that that impulse to critique and criticize—that's what led Frederick Douglass and 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 the, and the abolitionists to pursue to pursue the end of, of slavery because we we uh, we we. Uh, we develop the instinct to criticize, so this is good. Uh, and then, um, and at the core of all these things, at the core of of, of our instinct to critique all these institutions and everything in power, um, uh, uh, is is what Karl Marx called the critique of religion. Okay, and so this is the only time I promise I'm ever going to quote Karl Marx in a sermon. But uh, uh, but Karl Marx, he he, he told us that the, that the critique of the re, of religion. Is the prerequisite of every critique. So, if if a culture can critique those who say I speak for God and I have power that comes an authority that's beyond hum- humanity, that, that's at the core of of, of, of that's at the core of, of 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 any critique. That's the best critique. That's the best way to uh, uh, that's the, that's the that's the central thing that we can do to a, a, a attack or criticize a culture is by critiquing a, a religion and uh, and um. So our, our critique about all these other things, all these other aspects of culture, our, our government, history, and all the goods that it's produced, all the freedom and the in the equality, all of that stems from our ability to critique our own religion, our own spiritual, uh, our, our, our spiritual uh, authority or or, or or culture, and so and and so Christopher Watkins uh, he he, put, he points this out that actually. Zephaniah and all the Old Testament prophets, they would actually wholeheartedly agree with this and wholeheartedly agree with, uh, with, uh, with all of our culture's uh, emphasis to be suspicious and to criticize. Because that's exactly what the prophets are doing. What are they doing? They are criticizing, critiquing, Religion and the own covenant, religious, special covenant people of God. That's what's built into the DNA of the Bible itself, is to criticize. And so in fact, when now when secular humanists or atheist philosophers today, we we critique religion or Christianity or authority... What we're doing is we're just following in the footsteps of what followers of Scripture have been doing for thousands of years. So here's how uh, Watkins puts it, and this is a kind of a dense paragraph, but it's worth worth reading if you have a if you have the handout. It's in your it's in your handout. Follow along. So this is what this is what he he says. He says where this sort of late modern critique, that is the 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 the, the finger wagging of our culture, uh, includes a necessary self critique of the ideologies and false consciousness of the secular. It is indeed a secular reimagining of the Hebrew prophets. So it's just our culture is just doing what what the Bible says it we should do. Um, but where it contents itself merely to critique an illusion, vanity, or hypocrisy from which it considers itself exempt, so where, it's ex- where it sees itself like, like oh, I'm not, I'm, not, I'm, not, I'm not guilty of those, those, those same things, or, or what I am guilty of is not really uh, that important, it presents a reductive, shriveled copy of full-blown biblical critique and cultivates precisely that false consciousness that is ripe for satire and rhetorical exposure. Okay, so there's a lot in that paragraph, and there's a lot that he's saying that I'm not trying to say, but, uh, but, um, or there's a lot more that we could get into. It's a dense paragraph, but uh, what, at, at the heart of it, here's what we can know. It's easy to be a critic, and anyone can raise objections and be suspicious about the forces and the cultures and, and things out there. But what is unique about, what, about the Bible... And what's unique about what the gospel enables us to do is to critique ourselves, to be aware of and to expose and to fight against evil within our own churches, our own homes, and even within the evil of our own hearts. Okay, Because what the gospel and what the prophets are inviting us to do is to recognize that along with Jerusalem, the oppressive city, we are not above anything. We are not exempt from... We are, like, no sin is out of our reach. Just, I, 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 I'm not allowed to give this recommendation, but, like, watch Breaking Bad. Uh, like, <laughs> sin will take us... There's no limit to where sin will take you. We're not above anything, okay? Now, and here's the powerful thing. When a church follows in Zephaniah's footsteps and painfully, honestly critiques ourselves, then we can be... Only then can we be an attractive witness to the beauty of the gospel. Only when a church follows in Zephaniah's footsteps and honestly and painfully critiques ourselves, then can we be an attractive witness to the beauty of the gospel. And there's two applications that I want us to make from this point. And the first is collective, and the second is individual. So first, a collective or corporate application. Collectively, what does this mean for us as a local church family? As a local church, as those who have committed to following Jesus and, and committed to doing that together, we have an incredible obligation to be fiercely critical, to be painfully honest. And I mean critical in the best sense, okay? Uh, not judgmental, I mean critical, like honest, exercising honest criticism and, and critiques of ourselves. And to be painfully honest about our own shortcomings as a local church family and about our own failures as a local church. Too often, churches, when there's sin, whether it be sexual or financial or spiritual abuse of some kind, when it affects our whole body, when sin, when sin arises, our tendency is just to, is to downplay it or to sweep it under the rug or to find some other way to nuance and self-justify It's like a predictable pattern, what you see, uh, uh, what you see in church after church after church. But the gospel actually compels us to do the exact opposite of that. To do the exact opposite of bring it in, uh, of of sweep it under the rug, but actually to bring it out into the light, to expose and to be honest, uh, uh, and not not, not uh, 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 to be exposed and be honest about sin. And this is why, like this is why even just a simple practice of practicing meaningful membership in our church is so important, because we believe that's the whole church, the church as a whole, every single member is charged with the task of taking ownership for the church's character, the church's leadership, the church's vision. Every single member is involved, should be involved in the process of selecting and appointing leaders. And we are called to put in place men and women who are, above all else, men and women of character. We are called to have leaders with integrity. And where there is sin, where there is corruption or abuse or lack of integrity, when that inevitably surfaces... The entire body is to deal with it. Uh, in Matthew 18, we're told we are to take it to the church and deal with it in open, not in a secret boardroom, but in the light, handling it with grace and truth, handling it with compassion and conviction. And and having a, in place formal, meaningful membership, where we're, where we're publicly acknowledged, like, I'm in it with this group of people to seek the best of this group of people. Uh, having this in place actually helps us to seek justice as a church family, Collectively. So if you're like if you're suspicious of the idea of me, of, of of membership in, in general, like if nothing else, consider joining a church, whether it's here or somewhere else, consider joining a church just so that you can help promote the integrity of the of the local body that you worship with. Because otherwise, like if you're outside that. Like, you have no way of formally like, or, or, or tangibly affecting real change for the sake of justice and integrity within, your, within, a, within a local body of, of Christ. You can be the... You, yeah, there's, there's ways, but uh, to do it formally and, and meaningfully and tangibly, you can't. Okay, so that's our collective application. Individually, then. There's also an individual application for us as we look at the three fingers that are pointing back at us. As believers, we must be open to, open to honest, even painful critique of ourselves. So I want you to think about your workplace or your, or your extended family for a minute. No one likes the super defensive person. No one likes a self-righteous coworker. No one likes the hypocritical family member who never admits that they are wrong or owns up to their mistakes. Like that's, the, that's exhausting and, re, and repulsive for us to be around those kind of people. But the kind of person who can admit when they're wrong, who can own their mistakes, who critiques themselves, like, like, like Zephaniah is critiquing Jerusalem, who critiques themselves, who responds humbly when confronted, counterintuitively, that's the kind of person that I find much more attractive. And I'm much more willing to listen to their advice. I'm much more willing to, to, to lend an ear to them. And as Christians, if we want to follow Zephaniah and have, have a positive impact for the gospel on those around us, then our, lead, the, our lives need to model that same kind of self-critique and be open to criticism, open to correction from, from others and, and from ourselves. So where are you, like Jerusalem, the oppressive city, where are you contributing to a culture with a, that lacks integrity and justice? Where are you living with a lack of integrity in your own life? Are you blind, or are you closed off to other people's constructive criticism in your life, or do you eagerly seek that out? And if you are having trouble answering those questions, like ask the people that are closest to your life, that are closest to you in your life, ask them those questions. All right. So God is committed to to freeing His people from oppression outside from in, outside enemies. God is committed to ending oppression from within His own people. And then let's close by by. Uh, by with, with an application only when we are wrecked by the oppression ending gospel the gospel that says Jesus came to defeat our most, uh, uh, our, our most oppressive enemies both outside and within only when we are wrecked by that gospel can we live oppression ending lives <clears throat> and this is, this is Zephaniah's this is the heart of Zephaniah's words for us today there are a lot of modern and secular ideas about how to fight the injustice and the oppression that we, that we all see in our world. There are a lot of there are political strategies. There are financial campaigns. There's ads. There's raising awareness on social media, and insofar as those those align with a biblical vision for justice, and most of them, many of them, do not align with a biblical vision for justice. But insofar as they do align with a biblical vision for justice, these are all good. These should be pursued. Christians should use political influence and money and technology to br- to bring an end to oppression to bring an end to human traf- trafficking, to, 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 to increase our value in the, of the sanctity of human life, to, to end race- racism and, 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 and other forms of oppression. But the gospel actually pushes us further still. In the gospel, we see the just and the holy king of the universe take on human flesh, the flesh of a poor, humble, ethnically oppressed, economically marginalized man was falsely accused and unjustly executed, discarded as a criminal, though he had only ever stood up for the weak, though he had only ever defended the vulnerable and fought for justice. He was brutally, illegally, or at least, you know, legally suspectly murdered, but he did not die as a helpless victim. In his death, he was fighting for the end of all oppression. He willingly laid down his life in place of both the oppressor, in place of both the Roman government, and the Roman soldiers that were, that were killing him, and for the, for, for, the, for, the, for the marginalized and the poor. But then he rose again, defeating our enemies. And only as we look to that victory, only as we are wrecked by that gospel, only as we long for the end of all, all injustice in our lives and in the world around us, only as we are captivated by that gospel, only then can we change. Only then can we live just lives with integrity. Only then can we fight for for justice like Jesus fought for injustice. So let me close with three applications, three suggestions for how we can grow in living out this cross-inspired, cross-shaped, gospel-formed vision for justice. Firstly, uh, the Bible tells us to grow our capacity to long for the end of all oppression in God's final kingdom. So we are to grow our capacity to long for the end of oppression in God's final kingdom. This is an aspect of the gospel, like I said earlier. Like, we don't often think about this when we talk, talk about the beauty of the new heavens and the new earth. Like, we think about the fanciful things and like, wonder what it's going to be like. Is this going to be like an internal worship service or something? But like, the new heavens and the new earth are, are a world in which there will be no suffering for you nor for anybody else who has experienced way more suffering than you have. So let's ask God to open our eyes to the suffering of others that we miss. Let's ask God to train our hearts to see his heart for the oppressed and the vulnerable throughout the pages of Scripture and to see our own need for an end to suffering as a result of sin. The Spirit can cultivate uh, this longing for his perfect reign. So let's press into that. Okay, that's firstly. Secondly, we can relentlessly confess where we ourselves have turned a blind eye to injustice. Uh a small... Let, let, let me give you a, a story just of like how small this could be. I, I have haunting memories as like a 4th, 5th, 6th grade kid riding home on the school school bus. And uh, there was two kids on the school bus. One uh, one uh, was, uh, uh, well both were kind of friends. One was a friend who I was a friend with every other time of uh, the day except for when I was on the bus. Because when we were on the bus, there was a bully on the bus. And this bully would in incredibly horrible, demeaning ways bully my friend. Uh, and I remember, I mean, for years riding home every single day on the bus watching what this kid, what, what one kid would do to, to another kid and how many times did I ever say anything about it? Zero times. Zero times. Never stood up for my friend. As soon as you know, as soon as, soon as the weekend came I might, might go over to his house or I might you know, play with him you know, when, that, when the bully wasn't around but but when, when he was in need of it most, I turned a blind eye. I ignored the injustice that was going on. And we do this all the time as adults too. All right? We do this in our, in our workplaces. We do this culturally and with big big things. But we do this small, in small ways all the time. So maybe you know of a situation in your workplace or within your family. You know there is injustice. You know of someone who cannot adequately defend themselves and is being taken advantage of by someone with influence. We must speak out and we must repent. We must confess where fear or a love for comfort has led us to ignore the suffering of another. This could be a big sexual abuse or financial corruption, or it could be smaller, like a, a petty manager who who treats those on his shift with disrespect simply because of a personal offense, right? If we've been silent in the face of a lack of integrity and a lack of injustice, like we need to confess and weep and turn and turn from that sin. And we can do that because of the gospel. But then finally, we can resolve to exercise costly integrity within our own spheres of influence. We can resolve to exercise costly integrity within our own spheres of influence in our families we can commit to doing things the right way right when there's as parents like we can be uh, we can have integrity with the way we discipline our kids We discipline with consistency not based on how much energy we feel like exerting or if there's abuse in our family uh, we can uh, where there's secret darkness where sin has been swept under the rug we are called to bring it into the light this is costly and, and there is a sincere cost Uh, to living with integrity within our families. As citizens of a nation, as citizens of our state, we have the ability to influence politically, to exercise integrity politically. We vote with integrity, seeking justice for all. Or, 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 Or are we willing to vote for a candidate who is complicit with injustice or who abuses power simply because their policies help us feel greater comfort and security? We are called... Now, I'm not... In any way, speaking specifically about any candidate, I'm, I'm saying, like, are you voting with integrity when you vote? And we, and we are called to exercise costly integrity within our political spheres of influence. That's what we're called to do. And then in our workplaces, we must be committed to doing the right thing in the right way, even if it means being overlooked. We must be resolved to treat our coworkers, our bosses, our employees with blind impartiality, not swayed by fear of what they may think of us or fear of losing the comfortability that we've achieved. And we all do this in a thousand different ways. Uh, we can all be uh, we can all be prone to this in a thousand different ways. Okay, but this is the high call. Uh, that the God of justice calls us into. This is this is the uh, high call of the gospel that we're invited into. And by his grace, like we can live this we can actually live this out as we look to and trust in and delight in what Jesus has done in our place, okay? So let me let me pray for us. Father, would you teach us to love what you love? Would you teach us uh, to commit to what you are committed to? And would you teach us, even more than that, would you teach us uh, to delight and to glory in your commitment, your, your covenant faithfulness to your people, that you are committed to bringing about an end of oppression in every form. And one day we will experience that, we will enjoy that. Teach us to press into that now. Teach us to enjoy that now. Teach us to see that in your gospel, to experience that in, in, what, uh, in the message of what Jesus has done in our place, on our behalf. And teach us to delight in it. We pray this all in Christ's name. Amen.